Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Your old team's in Washington, ain't no stopping them. See me walking in the Capitol, topping up my stack, it's full, admiring the stone, cause the masonry is masterful, and me and Phineas are forming a more perfect union at the National Cathedral, and we're taking communion. People say that mining will be turning lights out, and they're sending mean letters from inside the White House, but they're never gonna stop it. Bitcoin blasting like a rocket, and we got a couple allies, but the rest be picking pockets deep inside the capitol base bumping like a tremor unflappable and rhyme like the guy tom emmer and i'm counting up the votes all my haters are a joke they just say what we want to hear too afraid to rock the boat and i be paying dues while the kids be funding hope it's insane it's galaxy brains 100th episode as always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great episode for you. It is our 100th episode, and we have joined by Congressman Tom Emmer from Minnesota, the House Majority Whip. It's a great conversation about crypto policy, America, politics, hockey, whole bunch of exciting stuff. Before we get to that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. 100 episodes, and we're live at the U.S. Capitol. Thank you all for listening. Let's get right into the episode. Let's go now to our guest, Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota. Sir, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Great to be with you, Alex. So uh, we were just mentioning you've been in Congress for almost uh, 11 years. This is your 11th year, 12th year? No, this year? is my, so it's the fifth term. They're two-year terms. Right. We just finished my ninth year, and we're just starting This is time. the 10th year. Um, you are the majority whip. I am. What is that, maybe, before we get into What does the majority whip do? So everybody understands, because most people don't, and they're too embarrassed to ask, because yeah. they think they're supposed to understand it. <laughs> the speaker is in charge of everything here. They're, they're in charge of the Capitol Police. They're in charge of the grounds, the architect of the Capitol. I mean, it, all the stuff. Mm -hmm. The majority leader is number two. The majority leader is responsible, essentially, for building the calendar for the year, when you're going to be in session, when you're going to be back working in your district and also works with the chairs of the different committees to determine when legislation is ready to be scheduled for the floor. Mm. Then you drop to the whip. Our job is to make sure that when that happens, uh, you can actually move it across the floor. And ordinarily, people would say the majority leader's job is the best one because you don't have to take all the grief that the, the speaker does, yeah. and you get to decide what moves. The problem is when you have such a thin majority, the best job in the House is the whip's job because you can't do anything unless you're going through us. We have to talk with every single member uh, and make sure things are right. They, passing. They talk about uh, that you're a vote counter, right? That you're, or, or where does the term even come from, whip? Are you whipping people into like, so it's interesting. the uh, maybe, party line? Maybe some of your, uh, your uh, listeners, uh, the people watching, can do more research, but what little I know, because I haven't had time to do this, yeah. I will at some point, because it's kind of amazing that I'm actually doing this job. But <laughs> I understand the whip's job was a creation at the end of the 19th century, so 1898, something like that. The story that I was told is that uh, the Speaker of the House at the time did not have a good relationship with Teddy Roosevelt. And so maybe it's a couple of years later, right? But whatever the time frame is, that's when presidents used to lobby members of the House and the Senate, Congress, yeah. uh, directly. Yeah. And this particular speaker wanted to make sure that 
his people were in line for him. So he created the whip's position. I want to say the first one was in 1898. Really interesting uh, uh, fact, which I tease New Yorkers about all the time because <laughs> they have a little different personality than us Midwesterners. Yeah. The first whip was a Minnesota Republican. There you go. Uh, there was another one in the 20s. I'm the third. Wow. Indiana's had two, so and there have only been 11 majority whips since it was created, right? Where wow. you're you're in the uh, the majority Republican whips, uh, if as I've been told, three of them from Minnesota, two of them from Indiana, so almost half of them come from the Midwest. I would argue it's because we actually know how to get people to collaborate that and makes work sense. together. Yeah, so you've been in Congress. You're, it's your tenth year. You have this job. But stepping back, and I'm going to get into some of the things that you've done uh, before you uh, got into Congress, the U.S. House. Um, but how did you get interested in politics? And if you might, Congressman, what is sort of, how would you describe your guiding philosophy as a, uh, as a legislator, as a representative? In reverse order, the guiding uh, philosophy can be summed up in uh, two words, customer service. I mean, you, you work for the people that literally uh, vote for you. And by the way, don't vote for you. You work for everybody. So you got to make sure that that's the part of the job that uh, is your primary focus. You take care of the people that put you here. You make sure that uh, you're responsive. How I got involved is pretty simple. I mean, I like I think most people were raised in this country uh, to give back to our communities. I mean, you've got two young boys. I raised a bunch of them and a daughter, and uh, you know, you get involved in the community by first, I guess, when you're starting off, it's uh, wherever you uh, and your family go to church. Then it's uh, every t-ball game, every uh, you know, hockey game. Yeah, PTAs just, and yep, stuff at and school. It just, you you get embedded in your community, and then there comes a day like for me, and I I tell the story. Jackie and I have a very young family. I'm just starting out and I get assessed and in dollars today, you guys would have to do the numbers, but I get assessed $30,000 for a sewer I didn't need and I didn't want. I, I lived out in the country. Right. But it was, uh, it was interesting because that's what activated me to run for a city council. I served on uh, two city councils over the period of about 10 years, and then uh, there was an opportunity in the Minnesota State Legislature, which I continued to uh, make my wife's responsibility. It's a Sunday morning. We've dropped the kids off after church to clean, do whatever. I take Jackie to a town about five miles away called Wyzetta, Minnesota. We're sitting on the, uh, on the sidewalk in front of a caribou across from the lake, drinking coffee and reading the Sunday paper. And I said, look at this. Our state representative isn't going to run again. And my wife says, you know, I think you should do that. To which I responded, why in God's <laughs> name would I do that? We got seven kids. We're just starting out. She says to me, aren't you the one who says, if you're not willing to fix something, you should keep your mouth shut. I Here like I that. am. Smart lady. Uh, I don't know if she's so happy with that today. But. <laughs> Yeah, my mom is a lawyer, and she always told me that if you can't make your opponent's argument as well as your own, then you really don't deserve to have an opinion at all, which I thought was a little harsh, but <laughs> no, no. I've taken that to heart myself. Actually, she must be good. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've got some questions about crypto and crypto policy um, and some others about Congress in general. But on crypto, you've been a, an outspoken 
I don't want to say advocate, but someone who cares about innovation and has and has been like many of us critical of certain regulators and policymakers approach um, to dealing with or supporting the crypto industry. How how do you get interested in cryptocurrency and either the the thing itself, Bitcoin or or others, or the policy issue? It was uh, just crypto in general. The uh, the story that I tell all the time is I had a uh, a staffer. Uh, who was into crypto and was managing my financial uh, services portfolio. And he gave me a book, like the first year I was here, The Age of Cryptocurrency. And I read the book and it was like, you know what? This is everything I believe in. I mean, when I was growing up in the uh, 70s and the 80s, it's like uh, this is where the era of big government was becoming bigger and bigger. This is where uh, you developed the, uh, we want to go back to the gold standard group versus yeah. the, uh, the, the Keynesians who believe the government has to take all these resources and generate the economy. I tend to fall on the individual side of that uh, argument, and uh, this fit it, which, by the way, I was telling uh, uh, my staff this morning on the plane last night, I watched Dumb Money. Yeah. My friend, that hits everything that interested me in the first place. Creating new opportunities for individuals to actually take control of their own destiny and, and be able to overcome this uh, this structure that has been created over the last 40 or 50 years to benefit those who are already in the structure, which I have no problem with that. Right. I just want to make sure that everybody has the same opportunity that this country is supposed to afford. And crypto, uh, to me, is doing that. Yeah, powerful tools of self-sovereignty and uh, individual liberty. You know, to that end, your interest, there's, been a, there's actually been a fairly large amount of activity in the House you have the Fit 21 Act, um, some stablecoin stuff. Um, you've introduced, I think, at least several bills. I had one. Uh, you've been a noted critic of central bank digital currencies. Oh, yeah. What is the lay of the land right now in Congress, in the House, for crypto legislation? I don't know. What are the driving forces that are at play? So this is not a Republican-Democrat thing. Republicans and Democrats both, uh, there's a lot of champions on both sides when it comes to allowing uh, the, uh, let's say, digital asset space, because it's not just crypto. I mean, right. it's, it's much bigger than that. Allowing that to innovate and flourish here in this country. Uh, and, and we've got a lot of great partners. Uh, Richie Torres from New York, Ro Khanna. I mean, uh, uh, Cory Booker's out there. There's yep. a whole bunch of champions on the other side of the aisle. That's not the fight. The fight is between those that are here representing the administrative state and those that are here wanting to represent individual Americans and others who want to self-determine. Uh, you you want to rise or fall with your own uh, hard work and effort and thought as opposed to having the government tell you, oh, I'm sorry, Alex, you can't do that. <laughs> not here, not now. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the fight. Uh, you're yeah. right. We have reached a point. Uh, the last administration was, uh, and not because of uh, one person, uh, you had a split, right, uh, between some of the heads of the agencies. I mean, I, I got to tell you, Brian Brooks at OCC and uh, Hester Peirce, uh, at Giancarlo, 
although he started doing some CBDC stuff I <laughs> didn't, didn't agree with. But the, uh, those people were champions. But then you had some on the other side of the ledger that were literally uh, putting roadblocks. It's true. Uh, even even uh, the Secretary Treasury in the last administration was not very, or I should say was relatively hostile. Um, there was a, a, actually a major midnight rulemaking, if you recall. Yeah, he wanted this, to eliminate private wallets. Yes, this FinCEN thing, which yeah. hasn't really uh, come up again at the administration level, but is a sort of at the core of some of the dispute in Congress, right? This like, idea. Alex, think about the concept. I want to see your wallet right. right now. I'm the government. You need to pull your wallet out, and I need to see everything that's in it. Yeah. That's essentially what these guys are saying. But that, that was then... Now we move to this, uh, uh, the Biden administration, which I thought was going to be more friendly for some reason. Uh, no. No, the Elizabeth Warren acolytes that uh, litter the White House and this, uh, these people that are literally uh, representing the administrative state that wants to uh, uh, control uh, individuals, uh, there's the battle. Yeah. And that's what we're fighting. It is actually fascinating to think about digital technologies in general, not just digital currency or digital assets, but email and messaging that we have this long-standing history in this country of, you know, being secure in your persons and papers and effects. And, you know, uh, that there is a been sort of an innate, I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but like an innate right to privacy, I think people agree with when it comes to your personal items, your thoughts, your speech, your communications. And yet every time there's a new technology created that just simply extends the way we already write, we end up with that same battle between the sort of people seeking individual liberty to protect it, which we started with, which right. we already had. It's almost like every new digital technology we get invites a massive opportunity for government encroachment. Is that, oh. will it always be that way? Talk about central bank digital currencies. Right. That would be the ultimate form of encroachment. Look what they're doing with it in China. The yeah. CCP is literally creating social scoring system uh, that they monitor your every purchase. I mean, for, for people who are listening on here, if you buy too much chocolate, uh, maybe uh, you uh, enjoy a, a cocktail now and then, maybe you buy too much of that, you buy tobacco products, you buy anything they don't agree with, and it's going to affect what you pay for insurance. It's going to, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not the, the right place to go, and you're right. Every time there is an expansion, innovation, and in technology, it seems like the uh, the central government and more right. importantly the central authorities around the globe want to try and harness that and control it. The beauty of crypto has been you can't. Yeah. You might stop uh, or slow down the process, but this is coming. Yeah. I want to tell you the acceleration. We have lost a lot of our liberty because you're talking about privacy, and this will show you the uh, the libertarian with the small L. I think <laughs> that is uh, in my heart. Since 9-11, they, they, being the administrative state, was able to put this on steroids by telling you and me we have to be able to do these things because it's about protecting you. Yeah. And people who are watching this should keep in mind always, you can become a prisoner of your own safety and security. Do not trust the, the government to take care of you in every circumstance in fact, they're using this idea that you and I uh, live in a risky world. Yeah. That we need to turn all our information over to them so that they can protect us. 
Uh, that is a false choice. Yeah, and it seems like, shouldn't we already be well protected? Things like the Patriot Act, I mean, to your point, we, there's already been tons of ground seated on this, and it seems like they never stop asking for more. Because that's what the goal is. Right. I mean, they tell you it's about your safety and security, which, you know, there are people there who genuinely believe that's true. But then when you keep overreaching, yeah. it becomes the state versus the individual. It's hard to conceptualize sometimes when I try to explain why privacy matters that, um, it's it, first of all, it's intangible. It's not something you really know about until you lose it, right? If you get, say, hacked or, you know, you're... People, this happens to people, their credit card gets stolen, right? And you get, and so people don't really grasp it until it's gone. And then when it is gone, it's basically impossible to delete something from the internet, for right. example. Um, is, is there any kind of, this is a little bit of a divergence from the, but, but staying on this point, people have become more cognizant of, of this issue over time with, um, I mean, ironically, the digital tools we have, we're able to tell each other about it, right? right. More, we see, we see the abuses more frequently, it's not just the government, too. Companies abuse this privacy all the time. Is there any chance of a, this is a long shot. I mean, when was the last constitutional amendment in the 70s, maybe? Yeah, I don't think you Can want we to ever do get any yeah. kind of, or a digital bill of rights or something like that? I think that's worth talking about, but when you talk about amending the Constitution, yeah. be careful what you wish for. I mean, I used to think that's a great idea. You bring a convention of the states together. Right. Uh, and then I started thinking, wait a second. We, those of us who are side with the individual more than we side with government, what makes us think the result is going to be in our favor? Yeah. I mean, the way the Constitution is now, I think we're better off, uh, me personally, making sure that uh, this type of uh, evolution can happen right here in this country, empowering individuals. Because this is what attracts me to digital assets and crypto. It is the decentralization. It is the empowering a person yeah. over the machine. That's why it was actually fun to watch. That Roaring Kitty guy has got to be my <laughs> hero for two reasons. One, because he did what he thought was right and he controlled his own destiny. But two, he didn't buckle. No. I mean, it isn't about the money at the end of the day. It's about doing the right thing for the right reasons. Uh, and if you do that doesn't matter how it turns out. You'll always be able to answer. That was an incredible time. I remember when that, I'm sure you do too, when that was happening in real time. Um, and they asked him, he was before the congressional committee and they're trying to pin him on like, you were manipulating the stock, right? That's why, yeah, that's right. why you were doing it. And he has this great quote, right? Where he's like, no, Congressman, we like the stock. I just like the stock. I just like it. Yeah, well, and you show me how he manipulated it. Well, exactly. No, and you're totally allowed to do that, to, well, to, to write about your positions can, and your yeah, trading. If yeah, if they can short, he can go the other <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, he can long it, yeah. yeah. So is there any room, I guess this is more a near-term question here, we got a, a year of, a, of, a, of this Congress left. We're obviously heading into an election year, or I guess it is election year now. Mm -hmm. um, we've got some leadership changes that will come. I know uh, Representative Patrick McHenry is retiring, I'll say, from Congress after this. But there's, is there any space for any of these, whether it's the comprehensive crypto reforms or uh, regulatory proposals or maybe stable coins? I know a lot of people, I think that it seemed like maybe the various, the two sides, whether it was the administrative state and the, and the liberty-focused folks or even just the Democrats and Republicans seemed remotely close. They seemed a little close on stable coins. Is there any chance for anything like that to happen? Democrats and Republicans are, Yeah. I, I wouldn't even say remotely. I would say we are close. Yeah. Uh, we've got McHenry, who has uh, made it clear that he wants to see 
the market structure bill move forward. Uh, he wants to see a stable coins bill, although there are some things that are still being addressed there. Mm -hmm. I think we pretty much have the uh, any disagreements that we had about the market structure bill have been uh, largely resolved. But Republicans and Democrats are there. Yeah. The problem is uh, the uh, the senator who shall not be named from Massachusetts and uh, the uh, acolytes over on the other side of the building and some on our side that want the government to have control over this thing, that's our fight. Mm. And I think what you're going to see, I think Patrick McHenry will move forward one or both of those bills, along with a whole bunch of other things yeah. in the uh, digital asset space. Uh, the goal, obviously, is to get it taken up in the Senate yeah. and then to get the administration to sign it. I don't know that I'm confident that those two things will happen in this Congress, but I am confident it's coming. And yeah. I, I think uh, Patrick is leading the way. We will miss him, uh, but he's leading the way as like his last, uh, he's going to do more than this, by the way. I mean, he's doing stuff on housing and totally. all kinds of other stuff. But this is a focus that has not been here for seven or eight years. Uh, and he is going to get some stuff over the line in the House which can start to set that narrative. And, and by the way, uh, you look at our side anyway, you're not hearing it because the incumbent's not into it right now, uh, President Biden. But on our side, you hear candidates talking about things yeah, like central bank digital currencies. Yeah, you do. You got Vivek uh, very strongly against it for the same reasons, yeah. right? I mean, this is the whole thing is what they don't understand, and going back to it, not just because yeah. it was such a great movie, but Dumb Money. Yeah, great movie. Shows you the power that's out there. Are these people the typical voters that we have seen in the last 30 years? No, no. Yeah. not at all. But they're starting to realize that their power goes beyond just being able to work in the, the financial marketplace. You can actually have a say in how this country is governed and how it is directed. And I would say to both Republican and Democrat candidates, you do not want to ignore this group. You do not want to take this group for granted or think that they're not going to activate because they have shown us uh, the digital uh, assets community, the Bitcoin community, crypto in general. They have shown us over the last six years they're a force to be reckoned with when they ultimately stand up and, uh, and shout. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Chair Gensler at the SEC, um, who I... Uh, used to speak with a little bit when he was at MIT, I was at Fidelity. Um, we were big donors to the Media Lab and a lot of people were disappointed because he had such an expressed love for public blockchains and the technology. And I'm not sure that he doesn't have that, but obviously the SEC has taken a very antagonistic and hostile approach. You've been very critical of the chairman um, and not just on crypto, What's your take on, on Chair Gensler and, and what the SEC's posture has been in general? I'm not a fan. And uh, I, I mean, I know there are a lot of people who have had a, a relationship with Chair Gensler over the years. Uh, and they've had great interactions. Uh, I'm not willing to allow the administrative state to expand at the expense of the people I represent. Uh, Gary Gensler is everything that's wrong with government. He takes over the SEC. He wants to advance himself. And how does he do that? He's going to do what people in government have done for years. What is my goal? How many people do I have under me? And how big is my budget? That's all they care about. 
And he has, has created a culture over there that is so uh, defective and awful. I mean, they are overreaching on everything. I, I was taught when I practiced law that uh, you ask questions that you know the answers to. And you lead people down the road to get to that place where you want to go on cross-examination. We have his chief of enforcement in front of the committee. We're talking about sweep letters. And I asked him a question that I never expected him to answer, which shows not just Gary Gensler's uh, incompetent and corrupt leadership, but it's the culture that's been created in that office. I asked him, isn't it true that you send sweep letters to individuals or entities outside of your jurisdiction? I, the answer you would have expected would have been uh, equivocating or, uh, you know, being vague. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know that. I'll have to check, sir. Do you have a specific? No. He said yes. Has no, no qualms about telling me that he doesn't care what their jurisdiction is. Unbelievable. Because they have decided they're going after anybody and everybody. So... That's just a little peek as to why. Yeah. And, uh, Gensler, like a lot of these people, oh, yeah, let's sit down and talk. No. Our job is not for me to like you and you like me. Our job is for me to hold you accountable and to make sure that you start doing what you're supposed to be doing in that job. And, I mean, the courts are taking care of it for me uh, recently. Yeah. Our friends um, Matt Walsh and Nick Carter will enjoy that I'm going to ask you this question about <laughs> SAB 121. You know this uh, staff do. accounting it's Mike, bulletin. Mike Flood's bill in the house. Yes. Um, it, it effectively requires banks to carry uh, the digital assets that they custody on behalf of customers on their own balance sheets, which, of course, given the fact that banks have certain capital requirements, basically makes it impossible for banks to custody digital assets. Oh, I wonder if that's the purpose of the guidance that created the rule. And there's a bunch of other things that also that go in line with that. The SEC has neglected to promulgate guidance and rules for broker-dealers to touch digital assets as well. Um, which I think is most likely at the core as to why most of the Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin ETFs are cash only create and redeem because the broker dealers wouldn't be able to participate. That's right. Is there a nexus between banks here? I always ask this question when I was growing up. Um, if you'd asked me, you know, what political party someone on Wall Street was a member of, it would just de facto Republican right. would come to my mind. Right. But it just doesn't seem like that's the case. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I think it might have been back in the day. But much like parties change their perspectives depending on, you know, who is uh, is driving messages, I think uh, what happened was Wall Street is, uh, it, and I don't want to get into the Republican-Democrat. Sure. I'm more the, again, the administrative state, those who want central authority versus those who want what this country promises, which is we can all, I, I mean, if Alex has the next great idea he should be able to take that out there, improve his own life, and, and lift the boats of everybody else in this country. What has happened, and Wall Street is part of it, is you don't come to the federal government to expand opportunity. Most of the time, you come to the federal government to protect market share. Yeah. And so the people who are, are driving this, and they're good people on Wall Street, by the way, and I, I'm sure. betting... It's Republicans, Democrats, and others, just like everywhere else. But let's face it, digital assets, uh, the blockchain technology, crypto, these aren't just transformational. They are destructive, disruptive and destructive. 
this is why I say our job in Congress, which is why it's so important that we advance some of this legislation now and that we start to, we get an administration uh, in the next, uh, uh, after the next election that is willing to work with us to, uh, to yeah. protect innovation in this country, protect entrepreneurs who want to create. The problem is they want to choke it off, and we just can't have that happen. I feel like uh, talking about the election a little bit, not specifically the elect this election, but in American politics the last, I don't know, maybe, I would argue maybe sometime around 2008 to present, both sides effectively argue that if the other side wins the White House, it's some kind of apocalyptic doomsday event that's going to happen, right? And it's, it's always framed that way. Why is that? Or do you think we can break through that one? It feels like we need to. There's a lack of, uh, at least at the, the loud voices at the national politics level, um, there's a lack of collegiality even. Uh, like a, Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it, the word that has been lost around here is trust, right? And it's, uh, it's been flawed leadership. Uh, let's just say it hasn't been leadership. Uh, it, you, uh, when I grew up, there were three uh, people in the world uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Brian Mulroney, and uh, Ronald Reagan, who uh, they were leaders. And, and leaders are typically those that say, regardless of what public opinion is, this is where we're going, yep. and this is why. And, and leadership is actually leading people to where they need to be as opposed to leading them to where they already are, which is the biggest problem we have. So, uh, yes, every election I have heard this is the most important election of our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, we're going to hear it again this time. For sure. And, and the apocalyptic part is, oh, we're going to lose America forever. No, we're not. This is the greatest country on the face of the planet, despite our disagreements internally, despite uh, uh, the, the problems that we have currently on the economic front. By the way, things are going well on the economic front for some people. Yep. And this is what they don't understand. I don't think the White House gets... There's a line that if you fall below that line, it's not going so well for you. I mean, inflation does matter to yeah, you. Yeah, they right? don't really explain very often to the public that when inflation is coming down, that doesn't mean prices are going to go back to where they were. Right, and that's why that line. Now you see uh, people who have uh, charged up uh, credit cards in this country over a trillion dollars of debt. That's never happened before. It's crazy. Right? So it's a have and have not. Uh, which typically is the fight throughout history when you're talking about how leadership is. I think uh, the next election is more about allowing uh, the U.S. to be the U.S. I, I think this is why the CBDC is a great example. Yeah. I mean, if the current administration is really uh, uh, intent on, uh, you know, creating this surveillance tool, uh, this is not Republican and Democrat. This is American. These are where people are going to have to make their choice. And this is what's changing too, by the way, Alex. So in, in the past, it was, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, therefore you vote for all Republicans, I vote for all <laughs> Democrats. That is changing rapidly. People understand this is, you know, the people who are here are actually impacting their lives. Yeah. Uh, the lack of leadership as well, which uh, should concern us all, is around the globe. We don't have a coherent, stated foreign policy that makes any sense. It seems to be reactionary. 
I don't believe we should be uh, involved in wars all over the world and that we, uh, we ultimately are the, uh, the final say on decisions that other countries make. But there is this thing about peace and security that's very important. And the U.S., whether people uh, like it or not, or they agree with me or not, my belief is when the U.S. is not leading in that space, this is what you see all around the globe. So this is a very important election. Uh, we will survive, you know, no matter what happens, we'll be here. I mean, I'm from Minnesota. We had Jesse Ventura. Yeah. We're still here. You did. We're still here. Things are funny <laughs> in politics sometimes. Um, quick question. Uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell was on 60 Minutes last night, and one of the things that I thought that was quite interesting that he he said, which the, the Federal Reserve, no matter who's in charge, has always avoided talking about, which is the fiscal impulse inside of the, the ledger, um, which I understand because they're trying not to be political, but he did say the national debt is a serious problem that we're stealing from our grandchildren to pay for our, our lifestyle today. Is there, I mean, I, I don't know, what's the best way to ask us? In 30 years, do you think the debt is, have we solved the debt or is it significantly higher? No, I oh, significantly higher. I mean, in fact, the difference when this country was going through uh, a lot of turmoil in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and, and you can call it whatever kind of supply-side economics or whatever, whatever Democrats call it, I don't know, uh, but you can be critical of it. Essentially, that was letting people keep more of their money, letting them uh, create more opportunities for themselves that grew the economy. The difference, we didn't have the incredible debt that we have today. So you were able to uh, both harnessing the growth of government, they didn't cut it, right? but harnessing, and, and I used to make the analogy, they put a muzzle <laughs> on the pit bull, right? And they said, you're, you're only gonna eat when we allow you to eat. That combined with unleashing this uh, entrepreneurial spirit allowed us to grow our way out of our problems. And frankly, you had 25 years starting in the early 80s uh, that has been referred to as the boom economy. It was the largest wealth creation in the history of the world, right? And here we find ourselves today bleeding uh, a trillion and a half or so a year. Uh, we haven't balanced the books on our budget. We've got uh, a total budget that involves one third now that's discretionary. In other words, I can vote on it up or down. Yeah. Uh, and I've got two-thirds, which is not discretionary. It is on automatic pilot, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. We, uh, we need to address uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. We need to rebalance uh, this one-third, two-thirds, uh, get our budget under control, and then, Alex, that $34 trillion in debt that we're carrying today, the only way out is to, uh, and this is why digital assets are where I'm gonna stay focused, is to grow the pie bigger. Remember, there are people who say the pie is finite and I wanna be able to rearrange whatever is in the pie to give it to you and to you and others. And then there are those of us who say it's infinity. You, you gotta grow. And so welcome to the, uh, the party, uh, uh, Chair Powell, but it's, it's been a problem for a long time. <laughs> Um, you played hockey in college. Uh, I did. You played at Boston College, and then you transferred to the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Was it better weather in Alaska than Boston? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually uh, took a leave of absence. We're talking about the 80s. 
after my freshman year at Boston College because my family's lumber business had gone upside down. Down there killed my grandfather, and my dad and his brothers were putting it back together. It still exists to this day. Yep. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my sons uh, traded uh, for the company, fifth generation in the company. But I, I took a leave of absence, went home to be closer to the family while that all, while that all was going down. And I played uh, junior hockey in the Midwest Got it. while I was doing it. They have and, good hockey out there, great hockey. Oh, it's, it was fun. It, it's called the USHL, which one of my friends said, you should have hung them up by now, league <laughs> or whatever. Wasn't Gordon Bombay from Mighty Ducks from uh, the, of Minneapolis or Minnesota? I don't think uh, he was. was. They, they put it That's in what Minnesota. I mean. I mean, his character, yeah. Yeah. That March, after I'd played for the winter, uh, a guy who I'd met coming out of high school uh, showed up at one of my junior games uh, and essentially said, unless you think you're going to play in the pros, you should think about coming to Alaska. You know, you can get an education. You can play hockey. I've, this new program that I'm coaching. By the way, you can hunt and fish. The truck was loaded, and I left in August. The American Dream. Final question here in on the hockey uh, topic. You have a lot of great paraphernalia here in the office. <laughs> um, you've got stuff from the Miracle on Ice and, and great quotes. And see you with a hockey stick up here in a photo. How does hockey inform your job as whip and in Congress? And actually, if I could just be more specific, can you talk about your job in Congress using hockey uh, terms and analogies? Is that possible? I do. Hockey is life, as a friend of mine used to say. Uh, you can learn everything you need to know about life in the locker room and on the rink. You've got a, uh, a sport that moves at an incredible speed. You carry what could be a weapon in your hands. <laughs> Uh, and you're firing a, uh, a piece of vulcanized rubber that's three inches in diameter at speeds that approach 100 miles an hour. Yeah. This separates the uh, strong and the weak. But you also learn team, yep. right? You learn about uh, being in a locker room. And the most important guy in the locker room or gal uh, is just as important as the weakest link on the team because everybody has a job and you can't succeed unless everybody is doing their job to the best of their ability. And it's just, uh, yeah, it has been my life. This is a coaching job that I'm in right now. This is not a job where you go to somebody and you say, Alex, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah. No, this is a job where you go to somebody and you say, like one of the best coaches I ever had, said to me for the first time when I was 21 years old, when we drop the puck here and this is the face off, this is what I want you to do. And I mean, I'd heard that since I was this big, right? This coach for the first time said, and this is why it's important. Oh, well now it gives you a whole different perspective. That's what this place is. Plus, I, I've always believed and everything I've ever done in life has been the same way. If you don't believe you can, you never will. If you believe you can do things that people say could never happen. I mean, that's basically what this year was about. And the reason you see all this, uh, this uh, 1980 Olympic stuff is not just because that is the era that I come from, but that is the attitude. People who tell me no, those are not people that I'm going to spend much time with. People who tell me that I want to try, I think there's something better out there. I think there's something bigger. I want to jump on that carpet. I want to go for that ride, right? And yeah. uh, so that's, and by the way, the guys here that I work with, they know that. I just be honest with them, tell them I, I'm not the nicest guy in the world, <laughs> but at least you know what I'm telling you is true. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Congressman Tom Emmer from 
Minnesota. Thank you for your leadership and for coming on Galaxy Brands. Thank you, Alex. And I got to meet your mother someday. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Galaxy Brains. We made it back from Washington, D.C., and you made it through our 100th episode of Galaxy Brains. Thank you to Congressman Tom Emmer from Minnesota, the majority whip for joining us on Galaxy Brains, and to his staff and Tyler Williams from Galaxy for helping to make that possible. And thank you to Phineas and his team at Studio Friends and the team at Galaxy Marketing for continuing to support and make Galaxy Brains possible uh, for 100 episodes. Here's to the next 100 episodes of Galaxy Brains, and we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. See you next week.